I would ask you to turn in your Bibles to the portion read earlier from God's Word in John chapter 17. Having a larger than usual number of folks away from us this Lord's Day, it was certainly a temptation to direct your attention to some other place in Scripture so that those that are normally with us or engaged in this journey through John 17 with us uh, might be able to continue it with us uh, as we study this together. But as I continued to prepare and consider, um, I felt myself, maybe you as well, could probably benefit from not just uh, reviewing what we've already done, but uh, kind of do a little bit of fine-tuning um, to bring the teaching of this prayer into clearer focus. Now, I don't know what you think of when you think of something being fine-tuned, but I think of UHF television. And some of you remember UHF television. I'm told it's still around. There's still UHF receivers and still UHF stations that are broadcasting. That's ultra-high frequency. Yeah, I have the first uh, 13 or so stations that have uh, another kind of frequency and the sound wave, uh, it's VHF it's called, and maybe I think it's variable frequency, but it's ultra high. There were some of these other stations that you had to have a, a special antenna to pick up those stations. And then with the antenna, there was always something that was called the fine-tuning uh, button. And you would twist the fine-tuning button, but you get one of these VHF, UHF stations in, and one thing was, was clear is that nothing was clear. It was all cloudy. And it was this... Uh, this fine-tuning mechanism that gave you some help. And that's what I'd like to do, just to give you some help in understanding this prayer of Jesus uh, just a bit better, uh, to put it into better focus for us. And I want to do this by, again, saying something about the people for whom this prayer is being prayed. And if you've been with us, you know that I do believe that in this first section, at least the first uh, 19 verses, uh, those that are in view are the apostles themselves, those who have been with Jesus, those whom he had given the words of the farewell discourse. Now he is praying for them, pointedly and specifically. And then I want to say something about the peril that these apostles faced um, as they're being sent into the world. And then finally, how this prayer addresses that peril. So we have the people, the peril, and the prayer that answers this danger or peril. First of all, the people. I want to bring you back to the people for whom this prayer is being prayed. And again, our tendency in reading the Bible is to take the statements of Scripture... And unless it's impossible to do it, we just assume God's given that statement for me. We personalize it. I was taught to view the Bible that way when I first was given this pocket testament when I was going... I'm sorry, I was a Christian before then, but you see these these pocket testaments even before I was a Christian, and it, it tells you, well, if you're sad, here's what you read. This is for you when you're sad. Um, when you are uh, afflicted, uh, in trouble, uh, fearful, here are the passages you to read. And these passages were given to you with that express purpose of meeting your need in your personal condition. 
And while it's always true that the Bible applies to us in our condition, addresses us by way of instruction that you can bring to bear upon our situation and condition, what the Bible means to us is not always what the Bible meant to them. What the Bible was intended to say to those whom originally received it. And our work really in Bible study is not so much jump to the point of saying, what does this mean to me? It is by asking it was that we should be asking the question, what did it mean then to the original people described in the Bible to whom this word of God came? I know we as preachers like to tell you to find encouragement in the scriptures by basically putting your name in, insert your name wherever possible into the text of scripture itself. And I'm not against that practice at all. But I'm only saying that comes after. That comes after understanding what it meant in its original setting. And that gets us out of trouble a lot of times because you have these statements that seem to be far more than what God ever promised to us that he promises to his apostles. Because these apostles were unique. They were different. They were their own um, calling that is not replicated in the modern church. We don't have living apostles going about today possessing the sort of authority that the original apostles of Jesus possessed. Um, We don't have these ministers of the gospel who to whom the the miraculous works of signs and wonders was committed as these were committed unto the apostles and so i think when we see the apostles in on their own in their own calling and the special work they were given to do the unique role they had to play after Jesus' death and resurrection, and see that a lot of these words are directed to them in their specific role as apostles. Not just as believers, but as apostles. And the things that are said to them as believers, yes, belong to all believers. But just that, well, every believer enters into this promise, well, then that's you and me. We enter into this promise. But we're not all apostles. And so not everything in this prayer we should take over whole cloth to our own situation and our own experience with to recognize the special work of the apostles themselves and then we have Jesus himself making it clear that at one point in the prayer he expands his prayer concerns when in verse 20 he says at this point he says I do not ask for these only but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one just as you father are in me and I in you and so now Jesus is expanding it he's opening it up not just to the apostles and their specific work because these were the people that were going to be the catalysts of the establishment of the gospel in the world these who came later in verse 20 are those who believe in me through their word the apostles believed in Jesus because they were with him they saw him They were eyewitnesses. They were ear witnesses to the words Jesus spoke, to the works that Jesus worked. And they were called upon to have a special role in the establishment of the New Testament church. The writer of the Hebrews, when he speaks of something of the chain of custody with which the word of God came to the Hebrew Christians whom he is writing. Look at Hebrews chapter 2, what he says. 
He says in Hebrews 2 and verse 3, he says, How shall we escape if we uh, drift from what we've heard, if we drift from the message declared by angels that was reliable? He says, How shall we escape having these benefits of this word given to us? We're coming to custody of this word if we neglect so great a salvation. But the chain of custody goes this way. It was declared at first by the Lord. He's the great originator of this gospel message. He has come with his words to give the words of the Father to his disciples. But then it goes from Jesus to the disciples and then to the next generation when it says it was attested to us by those who heard. So you have Jesus speaking, those who hear Jesus speaking, and those to whom the word of God is given through the apostles to the next generation who receive their message from what they themselves have heard. And so there is a distinctive work that the apostles were given to do that later generations did not themselves possess. They were responsible to pass it on, but not as those who heard the original. They weren't there. You and I weren't there. I know we talk of ourselves as witnesses. I I, I witnessed the gospel to a friend of mine. Indeed you did. What did you do? You witnessed of your experience, but your experience was not seeing the resurrected Jesus. That's not part of your experience. You don't talk about that. When you give your witness, it's what you've experienced. But the apostles were not, not just witnesses of an experience. They were witnesses of the resurrected Christ. They saw him. They felt him. They touched him. John tells us in 1 John 1.1. 1, 1. We don't have that privilege. But they did. And they have a work to do because of that privileged place and position. They were given by the head of the church to be foundational to the work of the New Testament church. Paul in Ephesians 2 and verse 20 speaks of the church that's built upon the foundation of what? The apostles. And the prophets, Jesus himself, the chief cornerstone. But part of that foundation work that is laid is laid in the first century when the gospel first went out into the world. And it's built upon the apostles in the sense that we still have access to the apostolic word. We're apostolic Christians. We're apostolic churches. Not because we have apostles in our midst, but because we have the apostolic word given to us in the New Testament. It's one of the great principles of the New Testament canon, the rule by which we as New Testament Christians carry out our faith. It's certainly based upon the Old Testament, in that the Old Testament testified of Jesus, as Jesus says, as part of our authoritative scriptures. But the way in which the New Testament was, was gathered and discerned that these writings and not others were to be believed and authoritative in the New Testament church was the question of their apostolicity. I didn't get that word right, did I? The fact that they came from the apostolic hand, either by way of apostles writing or by way of apostles echoing the words of other apostles. John Mark, who wrote the Gospel of Mark, was deemed to be the echo of Peter. And at least the early church fathers said that he did. He was under Peter's influence and Peter basically oversaw 
the production of the Gospel of Mark. Probably the Apostle Paul had a big hand in the authorship of Luke, as Luke was the traveling companion of the Apostle Paul. It's a question, did it come from the apostolic community? Is it an apostolic writing? Because we do believe in apostolic authority. Just we don't believe the people that strut around the stage today and call themselves apostles have that authority. If they're not teaching and preaching God's word, they have no authority. Their authority is from themselves and not from God. Authority comes from the apostolic word that we have access to in the Holy Scriptures. And the fact is that these men who comprise the foundation stone of the church comprise the foundation of the new Israel of God. Again, the nation of Israel could look back to what? Twelve patriarchs. Twelve patriarchs who were the essential founders of the twelve tribes, the fathers of the twelve tribes of Israel. So in the new covenant, new covenant Israel could look back to what? Twelve also, but not twelve patriarchs, but twelve apostles as the essential founders of the new covenant people of God. And so when John sees the holy city, New Jerusalem, come down from heaven in Revelation chapter 21 and you see that you have not only 12 gates upon which are the names of the 12 tribes of the nation of Israel but also 12 foundation stones which are the names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb the 12 apostles of the Lamb they're foundation stones in the new Jerusalem in the holy city in the eternal kingdom and state that Jesus will bring in as in his return. This new city is the gathering of the redeemed from among the old and new covenant people of God, comprising one people of God gathered together in the presence of the Lord Jesus. So my point is simply this. These are men who had a special role to play in the bringing of the gospel into the world, a special task to perform in the founding of the new covenant church. And so we should give our attention to how these words of instruction in 13 to 16 and this prayer in chapter 17 uh, applied first to them before seeking how we can discover applications for ourselves. For we're not apostles. We're not foundation. We'll not have our names written on the foundation stones of the city. This is really, at least up to verse 20, their prayer. But yet it's a prayer for them that does, in fact, apply to us. Let's look at their peril. Jesus is leaving. That's their peril. That's their danger. That's what brought this feral discourse to be spoken and this prayer to be prayed. The Lord who had led them. The Lord who had taught them. The Lord who had defended them will no longer be in their midst. Yes, they have his promises. In the promises of the farewell discourse, they will not be left as orphans. He will pray the Father who will give them another comforter to be with them always. He will come to them. He will answer their prayers. The Father will answer the prayers they pray in the name of Jesus. They have a whole host of comforting realities to provide for their help, their direction, their wisdom, their enablement to carry out their task. But the fact is still they will be laboring in the midst of very difficult circumstances and conditions. And so Jesus not only teaches them what they need to know to have comfort and perspective 
and know they'll be provided for and supplied. But he prays for them. He prays for their safety. He prays for their unity. He prays for their joy. Those things we talked about last week. Safety, solidarity, and strength that comes through joy. In a real sense, though, Jesus could have wafted them off to heaven in a moment. And you know what? There and then, full unity and perfect joy would have been achieved in an instant. Right? Could have just wafted them off into heaven. In a moment of time, all that was needed for perfect unity, perfect joy, would be theirs. In Jesus' presence eternally. Well, that would have been true for the twelve apostles of the Lord. But what of the rest of that great multitude that no man can number from every kindred, tongue, and tribe? What would they have been left if they had been wafted off into heaven? What happened would happen to the vision that Abraham had of descendants of, of, a, of, a, of a number that not even the stars of the heavens, if you can count them, they'd be so numerous. The sand of the sea. The point is, they're not to be taken out of the world. They're not to be wafted off into heaven. They're not to be perfected in joy and unity in Jesus' presence. They have a work to do in the world. Not in heaven. In the world. In the world. So Jesus says in verse 18, As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. See it in chapter 20. He breathes upon them. He says, receive the Spirit. As the Father has sent me, he tells them, so send I you. They are sent into the world. By Jesus, by the resurrected Lord of glory. And Jesus then prays for them in verse 15. I do not pray you to take them out of the world. Even though to be taken out of the world, to be brought into his presence, would have perfectly realized their, his prayers for their safety, their solidarity, and their strength. Though being taken out of the world would have led to perfect union and joy. In a place of everlasting protection, Jesus says, I do not pray for this. What does that mean then for the disciples? Continual danger in a fallen, unbelieving, and hostile world. It's in the midst of this kind of world that Jesus is leaving them in that Jesus is praying for their protection, their unity, and their joy. It's in the face of opposition. It's in the face of trouble. Again, and this has a parallel in the Lord's Prayer. When Jesus tells us that we are to be praying, that God's name would be hallowed, that his kingdom would come, and that his will would be done, and we don't need to pray for those things in heaven, there it's done perfectly. But on earth, as it's done in heaven, the apostles were the vanguard of an army heaven sent into the world to bring the conditions of heaven to the earth. Heaven will have its replica upon the earth through the work of these apostles and those who are influenced by their words and by their witness. 
And that involves danger. That involves peril. That involves coming into the world in which there is the activity of evil that's not only present in a general sense in the world, but it also becomes personified in the one whom the gospel presents to us as the God of this world. Both in the Lord's Prayer and in this passage, you have the mention of evil, and it can be taken as a general principle of evil, that's evil that's in the world, or it can be taken in terms, the terms of which is grammatically a substantive, which means an evil one, an evil person, an evil personage. And I think in the context of John's Gospel, I think the translation evil one is the proper one, because this is a Gospel that is filled with the presence of the adversary. And Jesus speaks of his hour has come and now the God of this world will be cast out. But the casting out of the God of this world through his death and resurrection does not mean that the evil one is not active. It doesn't mean he doesn't have still a a, a place in the world where he is a threat. Now his power is greatly diminished. His universal rule over all nations and all people has come now to an end. Now the gospel is going to go out into the world and the gospel is going to be taking from the kingdom of darkness those who will be brought into the kingdom of God's dear son. But Jesus still needs to pray for his people. That based upon his triumph over all the forces of darkness, his people from that triumph will not be overcome by the activity of the adversary, the devil. And so he prays. Let's look at the prayer. Keep them from the evil one. In the face of the peril, Jesus' prayer is, keep them from the evil one. In a real sense, the safety of the apostles is ensured by two realities to which this prayer gives expression. And the first is found in verse 11. And Jesus' prayer there says, Holy Father, keep them in your own name. Keep them in your own name. See that in verse 11? And then drop down to 15. Keep them from the evil one. Keep them in your own name and keep them from the evil one. In your own name and from the evil one points us to the two great powers that are really determinative in each life and in the life of the world. We're either being kept by the power and name of God and hence being kept by the power and name of God We're also being kept from the evil one or else we're under the power of the evil one and hence we're out from the power and name of God. Two kingdoms, two powers, two dominions, two forces. Every one of us is in one of those camps or another. You're either under the power of the name of God and being kept from the power of the evil one. You're under the power of the evil one and exempted from the power and influences of the kingdom of God. Of God. And Satan's resistance to the establishment of God's kingdom through the labors of these apostles would be fierce and unrelenting. 
There's a picture in the book of Revelation of Satan knowing that his time is short and his anger is all the more fierce. It's funny what happens when you know your time is short. Activity begins to mount and grow rather than not. I know when I start my week, I know I have three ministries the next Lord's Day, and so I begin slowly. I begin slowly. Because Monday, I have all the days of the week ahead of me, so I'll do a little general reading. I'll you know, look at the passages I'll preach on on the Lord's Day, but I don't do much work in the language. I don't do much work looking up meanings of words and such. I don't even consult my Greek Testament right away. No, because I have Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. My time is not short. i got lots of time to prepare for the ministries of the Lord's Day. But look at me on Saturday night, and activity has markedly increased. Almost in a panic to get it done. To be clear in my thinking, what indeed does this word mean? What does it mean in the context? How can I present it to the people in a way that would be understandable? The wheels are turning. Activity is mounting. My time is short. i got to get it done. Satan knows his time is short, and he's increasing his activity. His activity is seeking to overthrow the efforts of the the apostolic founders of the church and of the church in every successive generation to have an impact, an influence upon his kingdom. In the first century, he was very quick after the ascension of Jesus and the glory to bring trouble to the apostles. Read about it in the book of Acts. They come into the temple of the gate beautiful and they see the man who's the crippled man they tell him silver or gold we don't have but what we have we'll give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth stand up and walk they healed this man who was crippled I know that's not the acceptable word but I can't think of the one that is acceptable today you'll forgive me I'm old and so when his, his, his handicap was, was, was um, healed by the power of Christ no sooner did it come to the attention of the temple authorities that the apostles are being dragged before them they be warned no longer to preach in the name of this Jesus. And they will not heed the words of these men, will rather obey God than men. And they're in prison soon thereafter. They're beaten. They come after these ones who were the leaders of this movement in, in Jerusalem to advance the kingdom of Jesus and to advance the name of Christ in the world. Don't preach any more in his name. That whole effort will be highlighted by the persecuting zeal of Saul of Tarsus himself. But you see, the prayer of Jesus ensures their ultimate safety and success. Every device used to destroy the gospel and its witness will ultimately prove unsuccessful. It will be unavailing. The church is going to continue to grow continue to multiply in the face of persecution and opposition. And that's the wonder of reading the book of Acts. Because you read the book of Acts, that persecution comes and the church grows. We think these, just the opposite. Persecution comes and everybody runs. Well, to the extent that anyone ran, they ran into other regions where the gospel now would be proclaimed there. When the church was scattered from Jerusalem, they went and started to talk to other people in other places. It says they were gossiping the gospels, what they were doing. At first they were preaching only to Jews, but then they, at Antioch, came to preach to the Gentiles. And Gentiles were included. And the gospel begins its work to be a universal force of opposition 
to the kingdom of darkness and to bring many to the light of the name of Jesus Christ. And then persecution would come in those foreign nations from the civil authorities in some places. There would be enemies without. There would be enemies within. Again, Satan would use every weapon at his disposal to destroy the church. And if not to destroy the church's existence, then to destroy its impact. And one of the ways the impact of the gospel is blurred and muted and rendered ineffective is when you destroy two things within the hearts and minds of God's people. The very thing that Jesus prayed for earlier in this prayer, our unity and our joy. You take away unity from the people of God and take away joy from the people of God and you have a disunited and a joyless church. Hardly an effective means to further the witness of the gospel in the world. You have a joyless, disunited people You'll have no power. Much of the power of the gospel is to show God's work in the world through his people. And to make his people a new kind of people. A new kind of people that do not respond to trouble and afflictions and dangers in this world. Just from a principle of cutting your losses and running away. But in the power of the spirit to remain firm. The count it all joy when we fall into various kinds of troubles and tribulations and afflictions the capacity to serve in the power of the spirit in troublesome times to have the joy of the Lord that is our strength constantly renewing us as the people of God Jesus prays that the apostles will be kept by the name of God from the evil one and they might serve in the work they've been assigned to do and doing it in unity and doing it in joy Keep them from the evil one. When you see this prayer and got Jesus' intention to pray so that these ones who will be sending into the world to do this special work that he's called them to do will find success through unity and joy. I think we really, first of all, see something of the focus of the devil's work. When you think of the work of the devil, what, what do you think of? You think of coven, coven of witches? A bunch of people gathering around and chanting strange things and drawing pentagrams and using potions and doing all kinds of supernatural hocus-pocus, doing human sacrifice. I mean, we had in this country and in other countries what was called the satanic panic back in the 80s and 90s where people said Satan was everywhere doing all kinds of things doing all kinds of stuff and they did it particularly in places they didn't like they didn't like the fact that there were these growing numbers of daycare centers for children because women were going out to work so what do you do? you say well the proprietors of those daycare centers are are Satanists and what they're doing is they're sexually violating uh, the people that were trusted the children that they were trusted to care for the only problem was that there wasn't enough hours of the day for those people to be doing the things they were accused of. 
And there are actual FBI investigators who went into this whole business of the satanic panic in multiple places in our country where people were arrested, jailed, tried, found guilty, and found out this was just a bunch of fear. It's fear. Kind of like the Salem witch trials. Everybody was fearful that somebody's possessed of a, of a, of a, of, 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 of a someone is a witch and everybody goes crazy but that's not where Satan's found folks you know the reality of where Satan is found is oftentimes a surprise to most of us it's not so much in these places where we think he is it's in here it's in our hearts it's in our churches it's in our families it's in our failure to live one, one another with love and respect and unity Satan's focused upon the things that lead to the failure of the mission of Jesus. That's where the satanic panic ought to be experienced. That we should be in a panic that Satan will draw us to be at odds with one another. That the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace will be violated. That's what Satan's concerned with. He's concerned with God's people losing their joy in the things of the gospel. The joy of their salvation. Becoming tripped up in the personal sins of the heart. He's opposed to the creation of Holy Spirit filled churches, in which unity and joy become the chief expressions of his presence and power. And somebody tells me, well, Satan's active in the world, and the what they're talking about is the politicians they don't like. They're talking about the people and the entertainment arts they don't like. I mean, I figure Satan's involved in those things anyhow. But no special thing. The special focus of the work of the enemy is where his kingdom is being attacked. And it's not in the arts his kingdom is being attacked. And it's not in the political sphere that his kingdom is being attacked. It's not in the public schools that his kingdom is being attacked. It's in the church. That's the forefront of the assault upon the kingdom of darkness. The scripture tells us we're to be mindful of the need to speak to one another with edifying speech. Why? Not to give place to the devil. He'd have us angry with one another, bitter towards one another, cursing at one another, being opposed to one another. That's where we give the devil a foothold. It's in places we don't expect to find him. But that's really where he is. Keep that as an axiom in your own mind. If it's not something that's looking to subvert Satan's design, which is that the gospel would not be spread in the world by faithful Christians seeking to express unity and joy in the power of the Spirit, where that, those things are, are dulled and those things are rendered inoperative, that's the work of the devil. That's the handiwork of Satan. That's really what he's all about. Dead and dying Christians and dead and dying churches. That's what he's all about. And then the focus of Jesus' prayer, this, that should come into our view as well. And it's interesting, when Jesus prays against the evil one, he doesn't direct his address to the evil one. He, not even the, the Lord of glory himself, he doesn't say, Satan, I assert authority over you. He had authority over him. He possessed it already. He doesn't direct words of reproof and rebuke to the devil. He prays to the Father. 
He says, Father, keep them from the evil one. He prays the Father would keep them. He doesn't call upon the devil to cease and desist his activities. To bind him, or to rebuke him, or to cast him down. Again, such language is used to describe Jesus dying and rising. Jesus does all that. He destroys the works of the devil, we're told in 1 John. He destroys him who had the power of death, even the devil, in Hebrews chapter 2. But it's not his work in prayer that does those things. It's his work of dying and rising from the dead. His work of ascending to the right hand of the majesty on high, having won the victory over principalities and powers and dominions and over every name that is named. That's his work that brings the victory, that makes us to be more than conquerors through him that loved us. No, my point is, Jesus gives us no example to engage the devil with words. And so it shouldn't be part of our prayers, any part of what we consider to be spiritual warfare, to be saying, now Satan, we take authority over you, even in the name of Jesus. It's just not any part of Scripture that says that's what we're to be doing. Every part of the Scriptures that address our responsibility with reference to the devil calls upon us simply to resist him, steadfastly in the faith. That's what we're to be doing. Resist the devil steadfastly in the faith. We're no match for the devil just to engage in hand-in-hand combat. But through our Lord Jesus, who did engage in hand-in-hand combat and won the battle, won the victory, we are able to resist in his name. We are able to resist in the power of the Spirit, to give him no place, to know his tactics, not to give, allow ourselves to be seduced and to be um, tempted by him. Our spiritual warfare is a warfare that is in the strength of the Lord and in the power of his might. Our spiritual warfare is to be done as more than conquerors to him who loved us. That brings us not only to the focus of the devil's work, which is sometimes the things we least expect him to be doing, but really where he's very effective in nullifying the work of the church and the spread of the gospel. And not only see the focus of Jesus' prayers, that are not to engage the devil verbally, but to act in redemptive power. And now enables us from victory to win the battle of the daily life that we live in the midst of the dangers of this life that leads us to see the focus of our prayers and of our labors. It's simply to petition the Father like Jesus did. Father, keep us, even as your Son prayed. Keep us by the power of your name. Keep us from the power of the evil one. Keep us that we might labor on in the power of God to be kept from the power of the evil one as we resist his temptations, as we know his strategies to divide and to conquer us, his temptations to destroy our joy. We know what he's up to. We know what Christ has done for us. We know what we are called to do. That, Lord, you would give us grace. In the light of the things that we know, to live our lives with joyful submission to your word and to your will in the full confidence of the final victory. The full confidence. We're not on the losing side, folks. We cannot be destroyed and we cannot be defeated. 
Because Christ has come, and Christ has died, and Christ has risen, and Christ rules and reigns, and Christ will bring us into his presence with eternal joy. And that's where this prayer ends. Father, I desire that those that you've given me out of the world will be with me where I am. Yeah, he could have done it in an instant, could have wafted us into heaven, but he says, no, 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 no. My people have a work to do. They have a ministry to perform. And it's in a dangerous world. And the great danger, again, is not so often the things we're told are the dangerous things. It's the way in which Satan divides us. It's the way that Satan dispirits us. It's the way the spirit that Satan depresses us and destroys our joy and destroys our unity and destroys our hope and destroys our peace and destroys all the blood-bought triumphs that Christ has given to us and the gifts that he supplies to us. And those things were to resist. It resists his activity at every turn in the strength and in the power that the risen Christ supplies to us as his people. That's what Jesus prayed for us, and that's what we're to be praying for ourselves and carrying out in faithfulness as those submissive to him who is our victor, who is our strength, who is our salvation. May the Lord be pleased to bless his word. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, we pray we would be understanding of the realities of the dangers that this world presents to us, but also we would be awake to the realities of what Jesus Christ has done to bring us the triumph in its fullness. And so we are thankful that our Savior prayed for his church, that he prayed for his apostles, he prayed for the establishment of the church in the world and the prospering of the work of the gospel to the ends of the earth. Lord, we see that our part in all of this is not much different than our Lord's in that we're to pray for our protection and preservation, that we would be kept and that we would be strengthened and that we would be supported in the conflict that is before us as we resist the enemy and not become subject to his snares, as we maintain our unity and our joy and our peace and our longings to see your great name magnified and the work of the church extended in the world. So we pray you keep that vision alive in our hearts, that understanding of what has been gained for us to be within our hearts daily and that we would strive with all of our souls to crave your pleasure and and, and the glory of your name and the goodness of the gospel to come to others in the world that Satan's empire would be further dismantled And people will be brought captive to the obedience of Jesus Christ our Lord. We ask you to hear our prayers. We ask you to bless your people. We ask you to strengthen us in the fight that is ever abiding. And yet ever ever a struggle that we are more than conquerors in. So be pleased to hear our prayers as we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, before we come to the Supper of Remembrance, let's turn in our hymnals to hymn number, I think it's 178, but let me just check. Yes, 178, 178, O sacred head now wounded. <clears throat> 